right. I'm here with Dr. Warren Farrell. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I don't know how about the we. Um, I can't speak for how you're doing, but I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing well too. Yeah, excited to talk to you. You know, there's a, a handful of reasons that I was looking forward to chatting with you. One of them is that I'm the father of three young boys, and through your research and literature, have brought to light a handful of data points that caught my attention as a point of concern. Um, and I'm talking about, I guess, just the propensity of young men uh, towards some consistently uh, disproportionate risky behavior. And I wanted to sit down with you today and, and maybe check in on how I'm doing as a parent <laughs> and, uh, and steal some tips from you and just, just jump into the psychology of, of uh, I guess, the development of men's psychology. Let's put it that way. How does that sound? Sure, absolutely. For anyone who's not familiar with yourself, though, Dr. Farrell, and, and you know the book behind you, The Boy Crisis, which, as we just discussed, has become a catalyst for a new bill in Florida. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, is now backed by $75 million to support finding solutions to the fatherhood crisis or maybe the fatherless crisis. Uh, talk to me about who you are, what you do, and The Boy Crisis. Yes, yeah, I've been very um, pleased to hear that um, Chris, Chris Sprouls, who is the Speaker of the House in Florida, um, had read The Boy Crisis about four or five years ago, and he was uh, just had very young sons at that time. And so he was, um, you know, I guess more motivated than he otherwise would have been and um, uh, appreciated it a lot. And it was helping him with his sons, he said. So he gave it to all the leaders and uh, some of the leaders in uh, the Florida House of Representatives. And they together ended up being inspired to draw up a bill um, calling attention to the fatherhood crisis. And, and, and as you mentioned, uh, they're now uh, devoting uh, $75 million to, um, to making fathers aware of how, how important they are and to developing communication programs so that uh, uh, families will know how to communicate with each other so that they don't have the divorces that tend to leave the fathers out. And then also a second bill to have 50-50 um, shared parenting, which is oftentimes after a divorce, uh, the father is left out because the father, the mother is often has the right to the children, but the father often has to fight for the children. And sometimes that is uh, that creates such, uh, such a huge fight and a separation that um, it becomes very destructive for the entire family, the mother, the father, and the children. And so I was very pleased to hear that um, the, the most amazing thing was that there were two bills, one um, addressing the fatherhood crisis or the fatherlessness crisis, as you said, um, and that bill passed the House and the Senate, uh, I'm sorry, that it passed the House in Florida uh, with a unanimous vote of all the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, which is very rare in this culture yeah. at the time is nobody needs to tell anybody, especially in a purple state like Florida. Um, and so the um, and then the other bill um, asking or uh, requiring equal shared parenting after divorce, which is what uh, the evidence shows is by far the best for the children and for the mother and for the father. Um, that bill passed by about 72, 73%. Um, um, with mostly uh, most of the Democrats and Republicans approving of it. And that was a major accomplishment because oftentimes the bar associations of states um, do not want to have equal shared parenting being an, be an assumption because 
that doesn't lead to much legal legal um, battle back and forth. And so their, right. their, their profession is threatened by that. I see. Now, if I want to call in a couple of the data points that caught my attention, I suppose, mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, you've mentioned suicide rates in young men are roughly six times higher than in young women. Um, proficiency in math, science, uh, generally 50% less likely, men are 50% less likely to be proficient in basic uh, academic subjects like reading, math, and science, and just in general, um, far more likely to become addicts, to drop out of school, to do time in prison. A lot of like pretty scary scenarios, I suppose. As the father of three super young boys, my kids are one, three, and five, and I look at trends like this, obviously with concern. What strikes you as some of the most influential factors that lead to outcomes like that for young men? When I submitted to the publisher the proposal for the boy crisis, I had um, 10 causes that I had outlined, like lack of male teachers in school and so on. And then I, I started to look at, you know, underneath the, uh, the correlations, what was really a cause versus a correlation. And I started to see things like, um, well, mothers and fathers, um, when mothers and fathers raise a boy, um, and then that boy um, goes to school that has very few male teachers in elementary school, it makes a little bit of a difference, but not a huge difference. But when a boy is brought up in a, a single mother home and then goes from a single mother home to almost all female teachers in elementary school, he has no male role model. And as a result, he becomes much more vulnerable um, to being seduced by a gang that says, here, we're your family, you're gonna have respect from us. Here's, I'm a strong father figure. Um, you know, and, and so that, that, that gang, or if he gets a little bit older, and uh, usually boys who don't have um, any father or much father involvement, they, they become very uh, unmotivated and um, they, they don't have a, a, they don't have the boundary enforcement that they need to really have the discipline to achieve and they don't have much postponed gratification for reasons I'll be happy to explore with you. And so the, um, when, it, when a boy doesn't have postponed gratification, he can, if he say has a natural talent for gymnastics or, or being a, a basketball or football player, he usually doesn't have the discipline to, um, to practice all the drills and so on and really be, make use of that talent. The same as if he's a musician or an artist or a writer, um, it, it takes not just talent, but uh, we, as we all know, discipline. And postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of whether he'll succeed or fail. And when that boy doesn't have good boundary enforcement, that leads to a lack of postponed gratification. Mm -hmm. That leads to him not doing very well um, in school or whatever dream he has, he doesn't usually fulfill that dream very much. And therefore, girls don't take an interest in him if he's heterosexual or if, even if he's gay, girls don't take an interest in him. But he doesn't care that much if he's gay. But, the, um, but so he starts be becoming very uh, disappointed in himself and down on himself on two levels. Uh, level one, um, if he's heterosexual and girls feel he's a loser and girls don't tend to date losers, they want winners. Um, and so he feels like at loss in that way. So he starts becoming depressed and he feel and withdrawing into video games and um, becomes eventually addicted oftentimes to video games. Be, and uh, he begins to get involved with porn because porn is access to a variety of attractive women without fear of rejection at a price he can afford. 
Mm. And so he, he gets um, into that porn, but the porn ad starts addicting his brain to getting dopamine, you know, the feel-good drug, um, from um, first just a woman taking her clothes off. But then after a while, he becomes desensitized to that, and it gets more and more dramatic and sexual and, um, and potent as time goes on. And by the time a woman does take interest in him sexually, um, he's so addicted to only getting his stimulation from uh, sort of the most uh, extreme of porn uh, that the girl feels, the girl or woman feels treated like a porn object. And she treat, feels treated that way because she's being treated that way. <laughs> yeah. Fact. yeah. Um, and so, so she withdraws from him. He only feels that only reinforces the fact that, or the, his feeling that he's a loser. Uh, so that only makes him addicted to more porn. And, um, and it's the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Self-fulfilling prophecy. And it begins to get more and more serious. So it, that can really make him depressed. It can make him very lonely. It can make him feel like his only friends are the ones that really are, um, you know, are on, on the video game scene. Um, and and, and in, in the worst case scenarios, that depression can lead to uh, suicidal ideations and sometimes actually suicide. And or in the uh, in the even more more of a worst case situation, almost all of the school shooters in the 21st century who have killed more than 10 people, um, they are almost all dad deprived boys. And so the great majority of mass shooters in general and school shooters are boys that have um, a minimal amount of father involvement. And so you can see how the lack of father involvement leads to the lack of boundary enforcement, leads to the lack of postponed gratification, leads to feeling like you're a loser, leads to depression, sometimes leads to suicide or being so angry at the world for rejecting you uh, that you start, um, you start wanting to kill the people who are rejecting you um, because you feel so vulnerable underneath. And people don't understand that if you're a hater and you've joined some fascist type of group, uh, they, they see you as somebody to hate as opposed to understanding that, um, that, that anger is almost always vulnerability's mask. And okay. if, you, if you start hearing people who are angry, you start making them feel heard. And when they feel heard, their anger softens. You tied the relationship between uh, an inability to postpone gratification to all sorts of behaviors later in life, uh, video game addiction, porn addiction, et cetera, et cetera. But getting to the, the starting point of that, you know, is postponed gratification something that can be taught or is this, is it, we have it or we don't, some people probably more than others, but how do you nurture that? How do you nurture postponed gratification? Yeah, the good news is it, it is very much able to be nurtured. I am sure some people have it innately more than others, um, but, the, um, but the important thing is that, that virtually everybody can, can learn that, every child, every toddler can learn that. And, and basically, um, so I'll give a complex example that I think will be also fun. Um, so dads are you know, sort of far more likely to do things like roughhousing. And moms will usually look at the roughhousing and say, oh my God, you know, I feel like when my, 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 the, my husband is roughhousing with the kids, I feel like I have only one, um, you know, one 
uh, one more child to support here. Right. <laughs> you know, yep. And you have you have three sons. So let's say as a, uh, a dad roughhousing, you might say you you toss all three sons on the couch and you say, oh, yeah. all right, the, the job here is you three kids. You jump, you know, you jump on my um, back and um, and I'll and, I'll, and uh, you beat me if you pin me down before I pin you the three of you down. I got to pin all three of you down in order to win. Okay, God, that's great. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. going. Oh, God, I'm feeling that somebody sooner or later is going to get hurt here. Yeah, um, mom is only about ninety nine percent likely to be right, and um, and so, you know, so the the, the uh, rough housing starts, and eventually somebody uh, says, "Oh, you know, Jimmy, you know, took his um, um, elbow and put it in my eye. That was so unfair." And you feel, yeah, that is unfair. So you say, "All right, um, you know, the rough housing is going to stop here for a minute." And you know, Jimmy, you can't put your, you know, you can you can try as hard as you want to to win. You can use leverage. You can use eye contact. That's misleading. Uh, you can throw your sister, or your brother, in this case, brother, off, you know, off balance. But you can't stick your, your elbow in his in his eye, and you can't just push him um, away. Okay, Dad, I got it. And Mom is looking on and going, you know, well, wait a minute here. Um, I, you know, somebody did get hurt, just like I thought. I'm already feeling guilty that I didn't interfere sooner. Um, and so, um, and, and now Dad is dumb enough to continue the very process that I knew all along was going to lead to, you know, somebody getting hurt. And so, Dad, um, you know, but nevertheless, um, Dad does goes ahead and does that. But the next time. Um, once again, the kids agree, you know, that they're okay, they'll be, they'll be, they'll, they won't be too aggressive, et cetera. But sooner or later, they get so carried away with the excitement of the, of the roughhousing that they forget about their promise to not do it. And uh, bam, they violate again and somebody gets hurt. Yep. And so mom is thinking, all right, finally, you know, dads are a little bit dumb, but you know, it'll take them a while to, <laughs> you know, maybe now he's got it. And instead, dad says some version of, okay, no more roughhousing tonight. We're not going to roughhouse until, say, Wednesday night and say it's Sunday now. Um, and mom goes, you're not promising no more roughhousing. Um, and, but the next time the kids do roughhousing, they remember that the last time you told them they couldn't be aggressive, the roughhousing ended. And so now... They, the, if they succeed at postponed gratification, that is, they want to push their brother out of the way um, and, and win, that's immediate gratification. But if they, if they focus on immediate gratification, they're gonna, the dad is going to end the roughhousing. And yep. so therefore, they've got to focus on postponed gratification. Now, that's usually the dad style of parenting. Mom looks on and says, wait a minute, I tell the kids over and over again not to be too rough and they ignore me. I'm kind of annoyed that dad just did that and the kids obeyed him. Mm -hmm. What, you know, what am I? Um, chopped liver? And forgive the people who are, forgive chopped liver, it's usually pretty good. Uh, the, and so the, um, and so dad, so, and mom feels that way because oftentimes what the kids learn from mom is that mom do, does tell them you can't be too aggressive. But then when they are too aggressive, mom repeats, didn't I tell you you couldn't be too aggressive? Yeah. And then when they, and they say, yes, yes, mom, okay. And then mom has to repeat it again and again and again. The difference between mom style parenting and dad style parenting, and by the way, sometimes this is reversed. 
especially if a girl is very, very charming and she has dad wrapped around her finger. Um, dad can be super protective. But under most circumstances, what the dad will do is just plain end the roughhousing when the rule is violated. That creates an incentive to have postponed gratification. Mom just repeating herself, I told you not to do, be rough, so rough like that. Yeah. That's not enough of an incentive um, to, uh, to give up being rough like that. And so we see this in lots of data points. For example, fathers and mothers both set, you know, say the kids have to have a bedtime. When, when, mom, when moms are bringing up children as the dominant parent, moms set earlier bedtimes than dads do. But the studies of children with dads versus moms find out that even though moms set earlier bedtimes, dads actually, children actually get to bed earlier with dads. Why? Because dads will say something like, you know, they'll both say, let's say, uh, moms will say bedtime is at 8.30, dads will say bedtime is at nine. And, um, and so, with, but with dad, the dad is more likely to say something like, um, you can't, um, you, you, you'll have cha a chance to do anything you want when you get all these things done, your homework, um, your teeth brush, you have your, um, you've changed in your pajamas, you've, you know, you've taken care of cleaning up the dishes, whatever is required. And then afterwards, when you've got things done, you'll have until nine o'clock to, um, to have fun with me and we'll do anything you want. And mom will say, anything you want, you can't do roughhousing before the kids go to bed. Um, and you know, uh, and you know, what, are you, what are you saying there? But the, the kids then start out usually getting things done very quickly. And usually they are skipping on, on things like they're not doing their homework very well and so on. And then dad goes ahead and says, if you don't, you know, if since you didn't do your homework well and you got a bad grade, um, I'm gonna have to look over the homework. You brought that on yourself. Right. And you're gonna do that until your grades go back to A. Um, this is sort of very, and so the kids learn from, from dads that they, that, they have to, that they have to focus on doing what they need to do. Mm in order to get what they want to do. So children brought up by dads, predominantly by dads, 15, only 15% of them have ADHD. Children brought up predominantly by moms, 30% have ADHD. And one, one of the reasons for that difference is that the, the, the father, the dad style parenting is more likely to um, require boundary, um, succeed at boundary enforcement. And so the children learn that they have no option but to focus their attention on doing what they need to do in order to get what they want to have. Yes. Whereas mom, the children learn that I can manipulate a better deal. Mom said, I have to finish my peas before I have my ice cream. If I, but I told mom I had a bad day at work or a bad day at school rather. Mm. And mom felt sorry for me and she didn't want to get into a big fight over a few peas. So she yep. said, okay, I could have fewer peas tonight because I had a tough day. Ah, I figured out a way of, of, of manipulating my mom into a better deal. Especially smart kids. You know, they'll figure that out quicker. And it's like a, it's an interesting tell or indication, you know, I, and I read this, the, the sooner, the earlier age your child learns to lie to you, it's an indication of their intelligence because they figured out how to play a game, right? Exactly. Yeah, how to manipulate the game. It's very important to remember: uh, the smarter the kid, the more likely it will succeed at manipulating 
usually the mother. Of course, the, the, more, the better it will be at manipulating everything. Right. Um, but but the but the more you allow the manipulation to succeed, mm. the more the uh, manipulation will be uh, rewarded. And so one of the findings of children with single mothers is that the single mothers are often feel that the uh, they often feel coerced by the children manipulated by the children and the children become as you implied and said uh, phenomenal manipulators if they're success if they're intelligent and allowed to get away with having their own way yeah yeah okay now i want to i want to take this a different direction you know i'm very involved in my my uh children's life i'm a very hands-on father um and I feel like my wife and I have a great dynamic when it comes to playing to our strengths and, and each playing our, our role. You know, I, I, having said that, I wonder sometimes if I'm a bit, uh, I don't know, too, too lenient with my boys sometimes, maybe too affectionate, like I'm very hands-on and, and I love it. You know, they're just they're the best part of my life, right? So I just want to be all in there. Now, I want to ask you about a, a different outcome then because you know there's a, a missing ingredient in the upbringing of human beings in our contemporary societies that you'll find in almost every uh historical culture society and civilization which is some kind of a rite of passage that marks the transition from boyhood to man that that ritual that coming of age ceremony right and i i wonder if that is one of the reasons that today we seem to have a large number of men in their 30s kind of walking around uh, like adult children, right? Not quite sure of who they are, who they want to be, uh, maybe lacking confidence that would really benefit them if they had it. And I'm looking at my boys at the ages they are and wondering, you know, is this something that we should implement at and, and how I'm not sure, right? Because this isn't a, a cultural ritual in, anymore, at least in, in my culture. So, you know, do you see that as an important missing ingredient in the um, evolution of a boy's life, that, that ritual, that rite of passage, that coming of age ceremony that marks the transition from, from boy to man? And if so, how do we replace that? Now, the, the very purpose of a coming of age ceremony is sort of to that transition from boys to boy to man is the transition from you're taken care of to now you are responsible, now you're accountable. Um, now you're the one that's going to be the protector, the provider, uh, you're gonna do the taking care of. Um, and that is um, of value. Um, there's organizations like the Mankind Project that does a real good job of of helping to provide um, boys with that type of structure, Young Men's Ultimate Weekend and so on. However, the real transition from boy to men is every day in a child's life. Mm -hmm. As you are the one to both play with him, but also enforce boundaries, um, he begins to learn that the every single day that you both love him and therefore he wants to please you. The, the, the challenge historically has been that fathers that really were great boundary enforcers were often very strict and the children barely knew that the father loved them. And what you are as a father is a man that is clearly able to demonstrate your love. So you'll never have to worry based on what you said about your children feeling that you love them. 
the problem with many very loving fathers is that they they sometimes feel that, that they sometimes get so attached that the depth of their love doesn't allow them to do the boundary enforcement as effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the, and that's a problem that moms have too, that, you know, you, you know, who wants to see somebody you love cry? Um, and yet, you know, and, uh, and who wants to tease someone that you love um, so that they end up crying? And who wants to punish somebody that you love? Um, so that they end up crying or really miserable and so on. Mm -hmm. And so those things are very, the, the more loving and attached and involved the parent is, the harder it is to do that type of um, boundary enforcement and saying, okay, you know, I said that you couldn't pull that toy um, away from your brother and you just did that. Um, and now I'm going to need to set, set a consequence for that, for that you, uh, because you had a warning ahead of time that you did that. And so the important thing of setting that consequence quickly is that it, you're not so frustrated that you make the consequence too big. Because people, moms in particular, tend to say, you know, they repeat, repeat, and repeat the consequence or the fact that the child shouldn't do that. And the child ignores, ignores, ignores. After a while, the mom gets so upset she says, okay, you can't have that type of, you can't have that truck anymore. I'm going to take it away from you. That's the end of that. Um, and, and, then the, and then later she feels really badly that she exploded. Um, yeah. And so she starts to say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. And then she begins to compensate for her explosion and her anger. Um, but the, the, the trick is to, uh, to not have to explode because you enforce what you said you don't make too big of a, of, a, of a consequence. You make a small consequence because mm -hmm. you have to always remember that every consequence is in fact two consequences. It's the consequence of the behavior you say can't happen, you can't have that truck anymore. And the consequence of disapproval of the dad or mom enforced by that behavior. Mm -hmm. So the consequence doesn't have to be big. And it's important, um, but uh, when, it, when it happens, uh, the child gets to those, those two messages, like I'm, I, what I did did not get my parents' approval, and I also paid a price for it. And if I do it again, I'm going to definitely pay a bigger price for it and get more disapproval. But if you make the price bigger the second or third time around, you don't really need to get, um, you don't have to do a hollering or raising of the voice. That makes sense. That makes sense. Look, Dr. Farrell, it's been awesome just chatting with you quickly here, and I really appreciate your time. Um, I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of The Boy Crisis, and I'd love to have you back on. I wish we had more time to dive into the nuances and details of the, the bill in Florida, because I'd love to discuss that, and I wish we could today. So I'd love to have you back on at some point, actually. It would be a pleasure. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.